You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in Matthew 5, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. This is a large section of teaching. It spans uh, several chapters of the book of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, and it's, it's a great example. A lot of what we get in the New Testament is we get different highlight reels or different snippets of what Jesus was teaching, which this may be summarized some as well, but it's, it's quite a lot of material and it all happens in one sitting. And so we're getting a look at the kind of teachings that Jesus would give his disciples. It says that he went up on this mountain, there were people, there were crowds of people around, but his, his disciples sat down with him and he started teaching them about this concept of how to live a fulfilled life. That the teaching that he's giving isn't specifically here about how to become a Christian. It's more focused on how to live the life that God wants for you. And it has this formula that he uses that starts with blessed are the. And we talked about last week when we started looking at these, they're called the Beatitudes. There's eight different things where Jesus says, blessed are you if blank. And we covered four of them last week. We're going to cover four of them this week. But that word blessed has that churchy connotation, has sort of that religious, it's, it's not always clear what, it's not as clear as it should be what he means. And we talked about how in the Greek, the word here is makarios. And this is a word that is well understood from Greek literature, going all the way back to Homer and the Iliad uh, and the history of, of ancient Greek culture. This is a word that it's talking about. It means fortunate, but it means fulfilled, content, and whole. To be makarios is to live the full life of, of, of purpose and meaning for which we are intended. Now, you might not get that from blessed. And so it's important to understand, you know, that the language that this was written in is, is bringing around a full range of meaning that's helping us to understand Jesus is laying down for them the wisdom of God and how to have a great life on this earth. And so we get to verse 7 and he says, Makarios are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That being a merciful person will bring you fulfillment. And again, we, we start to see sort of the backward wisdom of how God's ways and God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. And this term merciful has several different connotations. One is in the sense of compassion, that we should be moved by the affliction of others. And you say, well, last week we said, blessed are those who mourn. And we talked about grieving for the suffering of others. But this is more in the sense of not just grieving about the fact that it's a fallen world and that it's suffering, but allowing yourself to be impacted by the specific suffering of others in such a way that it moves you to action. That you care about what's happening to the people around you. That you are not stoic and unmoved by the people that you see suffering. That you suffer in watching them suffer. And it makes you want to do something about it. There's another aspect to this word that's really about this issue of not holding a grudge. Being merciful 
can mean compassion, but it also means not giving other people what they deserve in the wrath sense. That, you know, you don't repay evil with evil. That if somebody wrongs you, you don't take revenge. You don't strike out. You don't punish them even if they deserve to get punished. And this is interesting because this is really one of the defining characteristics of all Christians is there should be their capacity to forgive. And I don't know that Christians are known in our culture as the people who forgive. I know as a non-believer, someone who was not raised in the church, one of the biggest problems I had with Christians was that they seemed very judgmental. They seemed very uh, higher, high and mighty. Like they looked down their nose at others. And it seemed like they were very hypocritical because they would point out one group or another group and point their finger at them and call them immoral. And then they would go and do the same or similar things and it was just about keeping it hidden. It wasn't about living a good life, living a moral life. It was about pretending and seeming to be a moral person. You know, you look very moral when you point the finger at somebody else and you point out their weaknesses. But when you have the same weaknesses yourself maybe manifested in a slightly different way and you keep it hidden, that's the heart of hypocrisy. And then someone pointed out to me as I studied and I got a little more understanding and I began to understand what real biblical Christianity is all about, that it is not hypocritical for a Christian to sin. We become Christians because we come to the point where we admit that we are sinners. If we did not sin, we would not need a Savior. Now that doesn't mean, well, then it's very Christian to sin, because the more you sin, the more you need Jesus. I understand your reasoning. I follow you. But that's not really what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is, is the definition of a Christian begins with someone who realizes that they have sinned. And to become a Christian is not a pledge to never sin again. That would be a pledge that we can never keep. To become a Christian is to cry out in need and help and say, God, like Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? There's a way that I want to live that I don't seem to be able to be consistent with. I try to be kind. I try to be generous. I try to be patient, I try to be loving, and I fail over and over and over again, which is why I need you, God. That's what being a Christian is, is saying, I need Jesus to pay for the sins that I commit because I cannot earn my way to God. I can only receive it as a free gift. And so for a Christian to sin, it's, it's bad, it's wrong, it's something that we should strive against. And in this life, we will be fighting and striving against our sinful inclinations, our entire lives. And it is failure for us to sin, but it is not hypocritical because we can acknowledge the fact that we are sinful people, that we have evil and rebellion in our hearts even now. And what being a Christian is about in part is about the fight, the battle to grow and become somebody who more 
accurately reflects the nature and character of God while admitting that we fall, we fall well short of that. Hypocrisy in Christianity is really the refusal to forgive. That's true hypocrisy because the, God has forgiven us everything, all evil, past, present, and future has been forgiven us when we don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. And then to turn around and exact judgment on others who have harmed us and to refuse to forgive them is the ultimate form of hypocrisy. And so that's why I think Jesus brings this into focus of if you want to live the life that God has for you, that life is going to need to be characterized by an understanding of your own sinfulness, an understanding of others' sinfulness, the ability to rejoice at your forgiveness and to extend forgiveness to those who wrong you. One common uh, statement that's made a lot in recovery groups, holding on to resentment is like drinking poison and hoping your enemy will die. And that quote is from a billion people on the internet. Because I actually spent some time trying to track down where this came from because it was like, oh, that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's, there's some wisdom there. And uh, some people uh, ascribed it to Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia. Uh, she said it. And then uh, some people said Gandhi, and some people said Buddha, and uh, no one knows. It's been said in different ways, in different times. And then I realized, oh, it's the Bible. Proverbs eleven seventeen: the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. That holding on to bitterness and refusing to forgive actually does more harm to us than the person that we want to take vengeance on. And God wants us to live a Macarius life. He wants us to be full. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to live a great life. And being weighed down by bitterness is something that destroys many people. I like what John Stott said. He said, it is the meek who are also the merciful. For to be meek is to acknowledge that to others that we are sinners. And to be merciful is to have compassion on others for they are sinners too. I think that captures very well what Jesus is driving at when he says, blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful. The meek admit that they are sinful and the merciful forgive others for their sins against them. He says, Macarius are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, we bump up against language here some, and also culture. You know, you would read this, you and I would read this, and pure of heart means what? It means moral good, that you're unstained by evil. But I don't think that's really what Jesus was driving at here, because of the way that these words work in the context of the culture in which he spoke them. Pure, you know, we think of that as, you know, white is the driven snow. But pure here is in more in the sense of unmixed. It's like 100% one thing. That it's sincere and it's transparent. That you're about one thing 
more than any other thing, that there's a defining aspect of your life that is not corrupted by all these different things that are vying for your affection. That's the, the sense of the way that the Greek word pure is used here. And then heart, the ancient world had a different way of understanding heart. We have a little bit of a different understanding. We understand biology a little bit. But we put heart as emotions, and then the will and the thoughts are in the mind, in the brain. In the ancient world, the word heart in ancient Greek actually means center. And they saw the heart as the center of who you are. It's the center of your chest. It's the center of your body. And it's the center of not just your emotions, but the will and the mind and of your being. That was the heart in their cultural context. So to be of single purpose of heart was to be singular and focus. It means to be about one thing. Macarius are the pure of heart. The, those who are about uncompromised devotion to God. That you are not encumbered within your affection. And this doesn't mean that you don't love anything but God. Because that's not possible. If you love God, you will become a lover of people. But it means that the number one, the most important thing in your life, the thing that you value above all other things, is God. And that will make you a better, more compassionate, more caring, more patient, more loving person in all of your relationships. The whole idea of idolatry is that there are good things that tend to begin to overshadow God in our lives, and they become more important than Him. And that leads us astray, that moves us off in a course, in a direction where we will find that we are drained from our ability to love people the way that they should be loved. What pure of heart means is only serving one master. Jesus put it this way. He said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money was the example that he used. Because you will love one and curse the other. And that to live a full life, to live makarios, to have a blessed purpose and fulfillment is to put God at the center of what you're about. The other aspect of this, though, is not only are you pure in your devotion to God, but you're pure and sincere and without guile. That you let people see you for who you really are, warts and all. That there are no spiritual fronts. You know, what I was talking about earlier where some of the Christians I had encountered as a non-Christian, my interpretation of them was that they were posturing as though they were righteous and moral in some ways and then demonstrating that what they were really doing was being hypocritical and judging other people. And what he's talking about here in being pure of heart is that you're being a person who's real, who's not afraid to admit your weaknesses, who's not afraid to rejoice in your strengths, who's not putting on spiritual fronts, who's not trying to paint a picture 
and create a false sense to others of who they are and what they're about, but you're genuine, you're sincere, and that there are no fronts of any kind. You just are exposed in who you are. And that this is a way of life, a way of living that Jesus says will bring you fulfillment. It's hard because it's scary to allow people to see who you really are because what if they reject you? But the freedom that you have in being genuine and letting the, who you really are be experienced and connected with others as you begin to have real relationships and you begin to experience acceptance for who you really are. And you begin to see the weaknesses of other people in the context of your own weaknesses and you begin to forgive other people because you understand more greatly how they've forgiven you. This is the foundation for a good marriage, unity and connection and good friendships, and ultimately in good parenting, is to understand that we are broken and we are flawed, but that we accept others despite their brokenness and flaws, and they accept us, and that puts us in a whole different context for relating that is just not available if you don't understand God's grace. The pure of heart are unafraid of transparency. He says, Macarius are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. People who actively pursue the art of reconciliation. Boy, do we need those today. What's interesting about this is if you think about this and if you're around for any length of time and you're about community and you're connected, you know, one of the patterns you really see that breaks relationships down in our world, and I'm talking not just friendships, I'm talking marriages, I'm talking about relationships between parents and children, is we really do not know how to reconcile. We may desire it, both parties may desire it, but to actually sit down what we do is we wrong each other, we hurt each other, we get offended, and we turn against each other, and we feel alienated, and then we stop spending time together, we stop talking, and then one of two things happens. We either get back together and we pretend like nothing ever happened, and we never talk about it, we never resolve it. We just try to forcibly push through, or we never talk again in any kind of meaningful way. Because we don't understand how reconciliation works, how you can sit down and you can apologize and you can own the things that you have done because you know and you accept that you have problems. And that when both parties come to the table with a willingness to take the log out of their own eye, as Jesus says, there could create a true environment of reconciliation that not only heals the relationship, but like a broken bone, connects you more together in a more, in a more satisfying and deeper way because of the conflict. No wonder Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, the people who are able to resolve conflict not only in their own relationships, but in their relationships with one another that is Macarius, because this is one of the great skills of interpersonal relating that so many of us lack. This must be demonstrated for us. 
demonstrated by God to us and then demonstrated by others where we see this, we experience it, we work on it. It's a skill that, that you need to have if you're going to build intimate relationships. And it's not a passive skill. It's something that you have to have in the heart of what you do and who you are that you have to be concerned with actively fighting for unity. Our default setting is chaos. Just left to our own devices, we will spin around in this world and we will bump against other people for a short time while it's fun. And then when conflict has, we'll spin, what happens, which it inevitably will, we'll spin off for a short time with someone else. And we will never build anything meaningful, deep, and lasting without understanding the need for reconciliation. And it's important to understand that reconciliation is not necessarily the same as appeasement or compromise. I like what Stott said about this. He said, this will remind us that the words peace and appeasement are not synonyms. For the peace of God is not peace at any price. He made peace with us at an immense cost, even at the price of the lifeblood of his only son. We too, though in our lesser ways, will find peacemaking a costly enterprise. The reason that we don't do this naturally is because it's hard and it's painful. The cost of saying to someone else, I forgive you and I want to move past this and I own where I am wrong can be very high because people will do some terrible things. The idea in the heart of the peacemaker is being committed to being the first to apologize. Well, that sucks. No one wants to be the first to apologize. But what if we were all committed to it? What if we were saying, if we went into every conflict with the attitude of, I'm not fully responsible for what happened here, but I'm going to be the first to take responsibility for my part the world would be a radically different place. Relationships, marriages, nations that were just willing in humility to admit that they aren't perfect, that they've made mistakes, to own those mistakes, and not to require that others do the same. That's a real trap that you can fall into. Is Okay, I'll be the first to apologize if that means I'll get an apology. You're doomed. You're doomed if you go into it for that purpose because people you love, amazing, wonderful people will always let you down. This is not something we do in order to get what we want. It's something we do because it's right. We can only control our own behavior. And it's the right thing to do is to, in conflict is to go and own what our part is, unconditionally own. But what a beautiful thing it is when people reciprocate and recognize they had a part too and reconciliation can happen. A peacemaker is somebody who works with people that others often find difficult, who's committed to loving others and helping others, especially others who are difficult to reconcile with. 
There are people who not only never gain the skill, but are so far from it that they're going around as agents of chaos, just creating conflict everywhere they go. And they become alone, and they become broken, and they become even more strange and even more alienated. And God calls us to move towards those people and break the chain by demonstrating His mercy, His love, and His compassion. And it's amazing what love can do for a person like that who absolutely knows that they have problems and they don't deserve it. That kind of love, that kind of compassion can take somebody who absolutely feels broken and alone and who just sees every interaction with another person as an opportunity to get their needs met and begin to help them see that they and believe that they have something to offer others. Real life change happens as a result of people willing to be reconciled. So much so that Jesus says, if you're going to be into peacemaking, if you're going to be into reconciliation, you will be called a son of God. Because you're going about the family business. That what God is about, what Jesus was about, what the cross is about, is giving mercy and reconciling people who don't deserve it. You and me. And welcoming them back into the family of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That Jesus went, he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And then he sent us out as messengers of God's reconciliation to Christ. He goes on in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's an important caveat, isn't it? He's not saying you're blessed when people treat you poorly because you're a jerk. He's not saying you're blessed whenever anybody does anything bad to you. He says when people mistreat you Because you have followed me. That is Macarius. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying that you're you're joining an elite club of people who were mistreated for doing the right thing. Who were hated by a world system because they hate God and they have accurately represented God. And brought his love to the dark places. He's saying seek peace and unity. That we're about that. We're about peacemaking. We're about reconciliation. But not to the point where we are willing to compromise on truth or loyalty to God. That there are, we should seek to be at peace with all men. But not to the point where we are alienated than from God and misrepresenting who he is. There is only so far we can go before we will find conflict if we accurately represent who Jesus is. 
And that could be a tricky thing to, to ferret out and to figure out and understand until we read the Gospels and we see the life of Christ. He was loving, he was gracious, he was patient, but he had a very polarizing effect on the people he preached to. When people heard Jesus preach, they typically had one of two reactions. And we'll see this as we go through and study the book of Matthew. We'll see that people were like, oh my God, I think that's the Messiah. Or they were like, let's kill him. And that's what Jesus is saying is that's the way the world reacts to the love of God. And if we are faithful teachers of Jesus' message, there will be those who experience the wisdom and, and love of God through us and are blown away and their lives are changed for others, forever. And there will be others who look at us like we are the worst kind of scum. And as long as we can be confident that we are being faithfully, faithful to accurately represent who he is, then we have to leave that on people to make their decision. We want to be diligent to not unnecessarily offend, to bring an offense that comes from us. But that doesn't mean that there's no offense in the gospel. That's different from being attacked because of our wrongdoing. What I'm saying is this. Think about it this way. Jesus is laying out these eight beatitudes, these eight things. Why, why should we live this way? Why should we live this life? On the surface, this wisdom is contrary to much of what seems intuitive. This does not seem be the first to forgive be merciful, be kind, be patient. Mourn and let yourself be hurt by the reality of the pain of the world. Be transparent. Like all of those things, it seems like we're being asked to be very naive people in a very dangerous world. And all of our instincts as we grow and you know, as we experience relating to others, whether it's at home or when we're little at school, we learn very quickly to put on facades to be careful, to be cautious, to not be too vulnerable with people, to not care too much about other people, to not be too quick to forgive. All the opposite things of what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus' argument is, well, if you do this, it is backwards, it is counterintuitive, and actually living this way will cause suffering. This path, this Macarius, this is not leading you to a comfortable life. It is not leading you to a safe life. But his reasons that we should do this are twofold. His opening argument is because it is the best possible life. Blessed are those, makarios are those who do these things. Their lives are full, they're purposeful, they're meaningful, they're rich in relationships rich in love, rich in compassion, rich in caring, rich in community, rich in an understanding of the way that humanity works and thinks and grows, people who are able to actually change and become happier, more content, more patient, more loving, and that they don't just grow and then plateau for the rest of their lives, but you can grow and improve 
your entire life, if you take on the challenge of what Jesus is saying here, and that's a big part of his argument is personal fulfillment. This is something that we can learn and that we can do and we can grow in. The second part, what I would call his closing argument, is this. You can also change the world. This won't ever only just make a better life for you, but it can be a challenge. It can represent a case for everyone you meet that they can have a better life too. He closes this section with this. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you live this way, you will change the way people understand wisdom. You'll become somebody that when you're in the lives of other people, they'll be like, there's something different about you. There's something that when you're there, it enhances the experience. It connects. There's something that you have. You seem to have purpose. You seem to have flavor. And that's something that we want too. It's an effect that God wants to have on the lives of those who don't know him through the lives of those who do. And the reason that the life that Jesus is talking about, the way that it could be more painful, harder work, less comfortable, more filled with conflict, and yet be a better life, is because that the experience of being used by God to change someone else's life is the best experience that there is. There's nothing better. And it's actually the very purpose for which we were created. God says, I created you in my image. Male and female, I created you. In the image of God, I created you to show other people who I am so that they could become like me. And when you experience that, when you connect with that, when you're having a casual conversation with someone or you're talking to them about spiritual things and you say something that you're not even sure what it was that you were saying and their eyes light up because they just, God just used you in their life and you're there like a deer in the headlights, like, what'd I do? And they're like, I can't believe you said that. And you're like, said what? And they're like, that thing about forgiveness or that thing about love. And these might be things that you've taken for granted. These might be old truths to you that had that impact on you at one time, but you've begun to take for granted, but now God has used it to light a spark into someone else's life, and you realize that you got to be a part of that. You are Macarius. You will be full and filled. It's like when the disciples came back to Jesus in John 4 after getting the groceries, they're like, you want some food? And he said, he just had the conversation with the woman at the well, and he said, I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. That you can be filled with the nutrients 
of purpose and helping the helpless. That's how God wants to use us. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in a house. That's the vision of who you are and how God wants to live through you. You are lamps that show his light. And if you are willing to, to live this backward wisdom, non-intuitive, seems a little crazy, but it works. Not only will God light up your life, but he'll light up the lives of the people that you love, the people that are around you. He says, let your, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why should I live this way? Because God will change other people's lives because of my small amounts of faithfulness where I did something that he could use. We're talking about a life of exceptional possibilities. It really doesn't matter how smart you are, how charismatic you are, how strong you are, how beautiful you are. None of those things matter nearly so much as how willing you are. And what God can do through a willing heart is endless. It's what Jesus called the abundant life rich in relationships, rich in growth, and rich in impact. And I think the only thing that really stands against that is this. Will I be a doormat? I think when you read the Sermon on the Mount and really when you read the teachings of, Je of Jesus in general, that's the tension that we feel. And what that tension is is the tension with the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world system. Turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, that's a doormat. When they ask for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. That's a doormat. Forgive those who won't forgive you. That's a doormat. If you live that way for real in this life, what you'll find is that people don't respect you. They don't value you. They don't care about you. And they will use you until you have nothing left to give and they will spit you out. That's the tension that we see and that we feel when we look at Jesus' life. Maybe Jesus was a doormat. From a worldly point of view, he came, he served, he loved, he died. And he died for the people that abused him, that tortured him, that murdered him. But if Jesus is a doormat, there's one thing we would have to say. He's a doormat that if you step on it, it will change who you are. It's not a position of weakness. It's a position of ultimate power. God's power. And that God is willing to pay that price, to lower and set ego aside, 
and to serve and love because that's what the world needs if it's going to change. That's what we needed. That's what changed us. And it's not about people respecting us. It's not about people giving us what we deserve. It's not about power and influence. It's about God's glory. Yeah, we're grateful, God, that you have broken into our messy lives and our messy world with words of wisdom and hope, with an incredible demonstration of the truth of who you are by dying for us on the cross, and that you've explained to us how it is that we can live a meaningful and fulfilled life. We desperately want that, God. We want that for ourselves. We want that for our spouses. We want that for our children. And we want it for our neighbors. We just ask that you will shine through us in a way that draws men to yourself. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.